Now would you please take your Bible and turn with me into the book of Romans. We're going today to look at the last half of Romans chapter 2. This section of Romans, remember, deals with the matter of sin. In chapter 1, he deals with God's righteous judgment upon the pagan, the immoral people who uh, degenerate because of their rejection of the knowledge of God and their suppression of the truth of God. Now, lest there be some who were moral and who would condemn the immoral and thus think themselves, thank you, sir, it is coffee, isn't it? Well, bless you anyway, John. (laughs) Lest there be some moral do-gooders, if we may use that term, who would condemn the immoral and think themselves to be righteous because they had higher moral standards, the apostle in the first part of chapter 2 condemns them. He says, you who condemn the immoral, don't you realize that you do some of the same kinds of things yourselves, if not in deed, at least in thought? You reject the kindness of God, which is intended to lead you to repentance. You have a stubborn, unrepentant heart, which stores up God's wrath, which will be poured out upon you. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he begins to deal with the Jew. Now, the Jew may have been in mind in these first 16 verses as well. He doesn't specifically mention them, but he does now. He comes to the Jews who did feel themselves quite righteous and quite in contrast to the immoral people of the world and the the idolaters of the world. They felt themselves superior to them, as we shall see here in our text today. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob idols or rob temples? Do you brag about the law? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, Will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, 
A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Having showed to us the righteous judgment of God upon the moral do-gooders of verses 1 through 16, the apostle now focuses particularly upon the Jew. So we've said the Jew prided himself in his outward righteousness. But what the Bible tells us is that this outward righteousness or this self-righteousness is no righteousness in the sight of God. That is an important thing to understand because there are many people in America today who call themselves Christians who are priding themselves in their self-righteousness and are planning to get to heaven on the basis of what they can do for God rather than on the basis of what God has done for them in Christ. So it's an important thing to understand that self-righteousness is no righteousness in the sight of God. We have an example in John chapter 3 of a man who was a Jew and who was depending upon his self-righteousness. Would you turn there with me to this familiar story, please? (coughs) John chapter 3. That coffee's poisoned. You know that? I may die before I get out of here this morning. In John chapter 3, we have the record of Nicodemus. And it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. This man was a ruler of the Jews. The ruling council was called the what? Sanhedrin. He was a part of that distinguished elite group. He was a part of the, the sect of the Pharisees, which was a very strict sect of Jews. They would be compared, perhaps, to the fundamentalists of Christianity in the sense that they were concerned about the exactness of the law and their attempts were to keep the law as perfectly as they possibly could. And they felt that they did that. And it says that this man came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who comes from God. And so he had respect for Jesus, but he really did not have a full appreciation of who Jesus was at this point. He says, no one could perform the miracles, the miraculous signs you are doing, if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so their conversation follows that. Jesus does not respond to this man's statement, actually, but he deals with the real need that Nicodemus had. Nicodemus was depending upon his righteousness as a Pharisee, the fact that he had kept the outward law. He went through the ceremonies. He did what he was supposed to do. He was a Pharisee, a righteous man in the sight of the Jewish religion. But Jesus speaks directly to the man's need. He says, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus had the need to be born anew. 
on the inside to be born from above. He had to have a new birth in order to be acceptable in God's sight. And the blessed report of the Gospel of John is that Nicodemus, over the process of time, came to a saving knowledge of Christ. He was one of the two men who did what? Took Jesus' body down from the cross and laid it in the tomb. And so he identified with Christ and in that sense gave an open confession of his faith and his understanding of who Christ was <clears throat> and is. And so we have in Nicodemus an illustration of this truth that self-righteousness is no righteousness as far as God is concerned. No matter how good a person may be, no matter how sincere in his religion, no, how, no matter how many rites or rituals he may have gone through in the name of God, in the name of his church, that kind of righteousness is no righteousness as far as God is concerned. It is not the kind of righteousness that a man needs to get into heaven. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 2. I say again, if personal righteousness, if self-righteousness had been enough, then Nicodemus would not have been told, you must be born again. He would have been okay. But that's not what Jesus told him. Now Paul explains in the text that we've read today three important facts about the Jews' relationship to God. He talks about the privilege which the Jew had in verses 17 through 20. And then he talks about the problem of the Jew, verses 21 through 27. And finally, the proof of a true Jew, verses 28 and 29. The Jew was a highly privileged person. The name Jew itself was one thing which they prided themselves this name is first found in the King James translation, at least, in 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 6. <clears throat> it was a term that originally referred to the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah, as opposed to the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. You'll remember that the, the tribes divided after the death of Solomon so that there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom ad adopted the name Israel. The southern kingdom adopted the name Judah. From the time of the Babylonian captivity, that was a time when Babylon came into the southern kingdom and took the people away. <clears throat> From that time, it seems that this term Jew began to be used of Israelites generally and not just those who had been a part of the southern kingdom. And the reason for that was that by that time there were not too many who were pure-blooded uh, Jews who had been part of the northern kingdom. They had gone into captivity over a hundred years before that, and uh, because they were an ungodly nation, actually, there were not many of them left. The larger portion of the people who returned ultimately to Palestine and who reestablished the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and so on were members of the southern kingdom of Judah. Most of them were. And thus they, most of them, or rather all of them, acquired this name Jew at that point. And you can see where they get the name Jew. It's from Judah. It's a condensation of that word. So a Jew is one who is of Judah, the southern kingdom, but now applying to all people who are descendants of Israel. Now the apostle points out ten benefits or ten advantages which the Jew had. 
We're just going to go through this list quickly. The first benefit is that he could call himself a Jew. In other words, he was a descendant of Israel, or Jacob, as he was called earlier. <clears throat> he could call himself a Jew, one who was related to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as the apostle writes this, he emphasizes that word Jew, a Jew you call yourself. You see, to be called a Jew, they felt was a real privilege, and indeed it was. And then he says, if you rely on the law, the second advantage or benefit which they had as a part of their privilege was that they had the law, and they relied upon it. They possessed God's truth, and that truth came to them through revelation. You see, the Old Testament is not a record of man's groping after God, as some people try to tell us, but it is the record of God revealing himself to man. And there's a real difference. There are some people who see the Old Testament as a record of man increasing in his knowledge of God, and there develops out of that eventually Judaism and so on. The Bible says it's just the opposite. The Old Testament really is a record of most of the world going away from God, degenerating in his knowledge of the truth. And God chose out a people descendants of Abraham to whom he could reveal himself and through whom ultimately the Messiah would come. So the Jews had the law and they relied upon that. Uh, A.T. Robertson says this was a blind mechanical reliance on the Mosaic law. And it was that. It was not really knowledgeable. It was kind of a blind thing. It became a custom among them. But nonetheless, they had the privilege of the law. Thirdly, he says you brag about your relationship to God. They boasted about that. And, well, they might have had they done it with the right spirit. But so often that boasting about their relationship to God was with a wrong spirit. And God was not pleased when they boasted in that way. We have an example of that in the book of Micah. I think it would be good for us to turn back there into the Old Testament. This is one of the minor prophets when they're all kind of scrunched together there at the end of the Old Testament. You can find Jonah, just turn forward a little bit. Jonah, or rather Micah, chapter 3, verse 9, gives us an example of this. God is here rebuking his people through his prophet. And he says in verse 9, hear this. You leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Now he's talking about God's people here. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about Judah. And notice he says their leaders judge for bribes. And the priests that they have uh, teach for a price. The prophets tell fortunes for money. <clears throat> he says, yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. 
Therefore, because of you, Zion will be, like, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. You see what God is complaining about? Here they said, oh, the Lord's among us. Jehovah is with us. We don't have to worry about ever being overcome. And though they boasted about that and bragged about that, they were not godly people. Their leaders were godless. And they as a nation were godless. And God says, because you boast about knowing me and yet your, your lives are wicked and sinful, then I'm going to cause Zion to be plowed like a field. Jerusalem is going to become a heap of rubble and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And that's exactly what happened because they boasted about God, but it wasn't real. Now going back to Romans again, in chapter 2 we see the fourth of the things that he mentions that were uh, advantages to the Jews. They could boast about their relationship to God. They were his peculiar people, but that did not humble them. They prided themselves in it. Now fourthly he says that they had the advantage of knowing his will. In other words, they knew that the will of God was to save and not to condemn. They knew that God's will was that all of the earth should someday be blessed through them. They had that knowledge because God gave it to them in the law. In Genesis chapter 12, when God called out their most famous ancestor, Abraham, he said, <clears throat> through you will all the inhabitants of the earth be blessed. You see, they knew that was God's will. And yet, instead of becoming humbled by that and allowing God to work that out as they should have with the right spirit, they, they were self-righteous, they prided themselves in it and responded wrongly. And then the fifth advantage that he gives, he says, and you approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. In other words, they had an understanding not only of what God was going to do, but of what his moral orders were. They were able to tell the difference between truth and, and man's speculations. They were instructed in the law. That was a real advantage to them. It was a benefit. Number six, he says, uh, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, and that's how they viewed themselves, the guide was one who led along a road. That's what the, the word literally means. And uh, the Jews supposed that they were to guide the Gentiles. <clears throat> but instead of doing that again with the right spirit, they had become arrogant. But that was God's intention for Israel. They should be a guide to the blind. He says, then a light for the dark. The dark, the blind, referring to the Gentiles, you and me, who are non-Jewish. God intended for them to be a light to the dark, an instructor of the foolish. Number eight. That is, they were to be the correctors of those who were foolish, the stupid, the senseless Gentiles who worshipped idols. Instead of instructing them, though, what did the Jews do? They adopted their idols. Instead of instructing those who worshipped Baal, they adopted Baal worship. They failed, but that was a privilege that they had. God gave it to them. He says, you're a teacher of infants, number nine. Again, that refers to the Gentiles, the infants. And the idea is those who are proselytes or who are novices. He says, you are teachers of them. And finally, he sums it up by saying, and you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, the Jews had a rough outline 
of knowledge and truth. It all belonged to them in the law. God gave it to them. And so he outlines here very clearly, as a Jew himself, Paul was a Jew, he outlines the privilege which the Jew had, what God intended to do through that nation. Now later in chapter 9, we're going to see Paul going down a similar list as he explains the advantages and the benefits which the Jews had and which they rejected. And that brings us to the second point I outlined this morning, and that is the problem of the Jew, verses 21 to 27. Despite all of the privileges and the benefits that they had over the Gentiles, <clears throat> the Jews failed to attain righteousness before God. Now, why was that? They had what they needed. Why did they then fail to attain righteousness, salvation righteousness, before God? Well, the answer is that it became self-righteousness and pride to them that they had these advantages. And so in these verses, beginning in verse 21, you'll notice that he kind of summarizes the ten things he's previously mentioned, and he takes them in an inverse order, and he shows the lack of their righteousness. Notice he says, you. Now back in verse 17, he said, now you, if you call yourself a Jew. And now in verse 21, he says, now you, then, who teach others. And notice they had called themselves those who were teachers of infants and instructors and so on. He says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? He says, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? He says, you say the people should not commit adultery, but he says, I have a question. Do you commit adultery, you Jews, who think you're righteous? You abhor idols. He says, yet, don't you rob temples? Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a statement back in Acts chapter 19. Turn back there a minute with me. Where this uh, same thought is used, Acts chapter 19. <coughs> what we have here is a riot that took place in the city of Ephesus because of the preaching of Paul. And the city clerk got up and spoke to the people who were in riot. And he says in verse 35, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. And he goes on to talk. He uses that term, these have neither robbed temples. What that probably refers to is the practice which many of the Jews had of merchandising, selling things in the pagan temples. They were out to make a buck, though they didn't have bucks in those days, but they were out to make money. And so they would uh, sell things in these pagan temples. Oh, they condemned the temple. See, they condemned idolatry. They said, oh, you, you pagans, you immoral people, God's ordered us not to worship false gods. And then they would go over and set up their table and put out their wares, and they'd make money right there in the temple. And so apparently that's what Paul has in mind here when he says, you who um, abhor idols, don't you rob temples? And then he says, you brag about the law. Remember we said they boasted about their relationship to God, and they relied on the law. He says, you brag about the law, 
Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And the word there literally means that they were transgressors of the law. Now that's something a Jew never felt that he was, a transgressor of the law. He says, you are breaking the law. You preach against others, but you don't practice what you preach. Well, that's essentially what he's saying. And then he quotes in verse 24, from a couple of verses really in the Old Testament that say about the same thing. And <clears throat> he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Why? Because of you. What an indictment that was of the Jews. He says, the name of God that you boast yourselves in, the name that you are supposed to declare to the Gentiles, that holy name is blasphemed by the Gentiles because of you and your self-righteousness. He lays it on thick here. Now, he could well do that because Paul himself had been a Pharisee and a very self-righteous person. But there came a day on the road to Damascus when he laid all of that aside and he realized that was nothing, that his need was to trust Jesus Christ. And on that day, Paul was saved, wasn't he? And was given the righteousness of God and became a new creature in Christ and was a Christian, a real, genuine Christian. So Paul lays it on thick here, and he, as he condemns the Jews, he explains to their problem to them. Griffith Thomas, in his commentary, has this good sentence. There is nothing more solemn or awful than the case of a man who, in mind and speech, is ever boastful and glorying in religion, and yet through his evil life is bringing discredit to the very religion he professes. There are many people in the world today who say, well, I'm never becoming a Christian because of all the hypocrites there in the church. Often that is simply an excuse, isn't it? Many times that is a statement that is used to cover over that individual's own need. But you know the tragedy? The tragedy is that there are some Christians who are hypocrites and who say one thing on Sunday and through the rest of the week live like the devil. Through them, the name of God is blasphemed too. I remember witnessing to a gentleman on one occasion and trying to win him to Christ and he asked me where I went to church and where I was pastoring and so I told him he thought for a minute, he said, is that where so-and-so goes to church? When he said the name, I was concerned because I was aware as the pastor of some inconsistencies. I said, yes, it is. He said, I don't want to talk any more about it. He said, that's what a Christian is. Then I never want to be a Christian. That man will not be able to stand before God and use that for an excuse. He will be held accountable to God for his own sin. But I'll tell you something. That Christian in our church who lived an ungodly life will answer for it before God too. He will have to give answer to God because through him the name of God had been blasphemed. Is the Spirit of God applying that to your life? 
He applied it to my life as I prepared for this this morning. Dear people, it's not enough that we know how to use the four spiritual laws or some method. It's not enough that we are willing to share our faith or even that we put a bumper sticker on our car. As fine as those things are in themselves, if we are living lives that are inconsistent and hypocritical, then God help us to do the best thing, and that is to repent of our sin and get our lives straightened out, or to do the next best thing, and that is to shut our mouths and to get the bumper sticker off our car. It is better that we say nothing than that we should try to bring glory to God and have a life that is inconsistent with that. That was the problem the Jew had. He wanted to be an instructor of the Gentiles, a light for them, a teacher. And Paul says, the very one that you're trying to show the Gentiles, you are blaspheming because of your inconsistency. He goes on to say, circumcision has value if you observe the law. Now the Jews bragged about their circumcision, didn't they? That was a physical circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant that they had with God, which Moses delivered to them. It was a very special sign of their covenant. <clears throat> and he says, it has value, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law, in other words, the pagans, those who have never had the law, who have never been uh, related to God through the Mosaic law, if those who are not circumcised nonetheless keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The word in that phrase there is the word reckoned or imputed. He says, it'll be imputed to them. If they obey, it'll be imputed to them as though they had been circumcised. He says, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you. Even though you have the written code and the circumcision and you're a lawbreaker. What is he saying here? He is saying that the important thing is not the outward ceremony, the outward act. The important thing is the heart. How many people are there who are trusting their baptism to get them to heaven? They were taken to the church as I was, as a little baby. They were taken to the front of the church, and there the preacher said a little prayer over them and sprinkled them with water. And they think that somehow that brought them into God's family. The Bible says that is not true. How many people are there who think that because they belong to a certain church, that therefore they are set for heaven? That is not true. How many people are there who think that by taking the Lord's Supper that they are somehow getting more grace before God and more merit and that someday they'll be able to stand before God because they did that. You see, it's not the outward things that we do. It's the inward thing that we do by trusting Jesus Christ. And that's what he goes on to say in the last two verses. He talks about the true Jew. He says the distinction between the Jew outwardly and the Jew inwardly is what makes the difference. There are those who are Jews outwardly, that is, who've been circumcised, who are part of the Jewish religion, who've been through the rites, and yet they've never become a Jew on the inside by what he calls here the circumcision of the heart. 
See, that's something on the inside. It's not done with a knife. It's not done in a temple with a priest. But he's talking about the work of the Spirit, as he says here. It's the Holy Spirit on the inside who, as it were, cuts away the sin that condemns us before God. That's the inner circumcision that the Jews needed. That's the true Jew. And you know, there's a sense in which today, though you and I may not be related to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, that we are a Jew if we trust Jesus Christ. We'll see that over in chapter 4 when he talks, to, talks about Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Well, actually, it's those who believe like Abraham did, who trust God, not those who go through some outward ceremony. Now let's apply that to Christianity. It applies well. Who is a true Christian? Not one who's been through the outward ceremonies, but one who has had the inner work of God's Spirit in his life. And so I conclude by asking this question today of you. I ask it in love, not to condemn you, but I ask it to be honest to the Word of God. Are you today a true Christian? Or are you just a cultural Christian? I fear that some of the 40 million Christians that are supposed to be in this country are simply cultural Christians. They've been brought up to in a certain religion, a certain church. They know certain Bible verses maybe or certain aspects of doctrine, but they've never come to a life-changing experience by trusting Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you today. You've grown up with the, the church, you've grown up with the language, but you've never come face to face with Jesus Christ and repented of your sin and asked him to come into your life to save you. Well, that's why he came into the world, to die and to be raised again, so that he could save you. He died for you. Will you receive him today as your Savior? He concludes by saying, Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. It makes no difference what men think. The only thing that counts is what God thinks. How is it between you and God today? There's an interesting play on words here that you can't immediately see. He says, such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. He says, the true Jew, or the true Christian, we may say, receives praise from God. Do you know what the word Judah, from which you get the word Jew, means in the Hebrew? It means praise. You might say it this way, such a man's Jew, his praise, is not from men, but from God. You see, the important thing is that we'll be able to stand before God and hear his words, enter in, my child, to the place I've prepared for you. I hope that you'll be able to hear those words someday because you have become a, a true Christian. It's possible to be religious and to be lost. Let's bow together in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you today because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one of us who can stand before you and claim to have enough self-righteousness to gain entrance to heaven. We recognize, too, that there is 
no church membership, nor is there any outward ritual or ceremony that we can go through that will make us fit for heaven. And Lord, if there be any of us in this auditorium this morning who are still trusting in something outward and who've never experienced the inward reality of salvation, today that one or those several would open the heart's door and receive Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.